If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have one, there are some on the back table. Feel free to borrow one of those. But Luke chapter 22, um, we'll begin in verse 63 of chapter 22, and we're going to get all the way into um, verse 16 of chapter 23. So a fairly large chunk here of Scripture. Luke 22. A few years years ago, Andrew and I watched a documentary. It was called The Central Park Five. Uh, Some of you may remember some of these events as I describe them, but it tells the story of five teenage boys um, who lived in New York City, and in 1989, they were accused and then convicted of a brutal attack on a woman in Central Park. Um, All five of these young men were sentenced to between 5 and 15 years in prison for what they had done. However, in this documentary, it was argued that the, the youth were actually, they were, they were coerced into some of these confessions, that there was um, improper intimidation techniques that were used to bring this crime on them, and, um, and also other crimes that were pinned on these five young men. And, and some of that's disputed. Who knows what happens behind closed doors sometimes. But what we do know is that in 2002, a man came forward and confessed that he, in fact, acted alone and committed this brutal attack in Central Park. So after having spent years in prison and having their young lives completely uh, and irreparably damaged, these five youth are suddenly declared innocent, some of them having already paid their whole sentence. They had paid the penalty for a crime they didn't commit. And, and now they are shown to be not guilty. In some sense, as I read through Luke 22 and 23 and the trials of Jesus, this is in a sense Luke's documentary on the trial of Jesus. And he intends, as it were, to sort of peel back the curtain and reveal what really happened that led to the crucifixion of Jesus. These trials show that Jesus is being accused of crimes that he never committed. The, the, the trials spell out the, the joke of a trial that this, in fact, was. A kangaroo court, as some people call it. This is all these false accusations that were brought against Jesus. And he's eventually condemned to death. But Luke's point in this section, I think, is very simple, and it's this. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was innocent. He was blameless. He, he was not guilty. I, I want us to walk through... Luke's explanation of this, and we're going to go, like I said, all the way through verse 16 of chapter um, 23, but I I think what we want to do is see how Luke communicates that fact, Jesus was innocent, and then ask, why is that so important? Because this is a huge chunk of Luke's gospel, versus the trial goes on for a good period of time. Why does he spend so much time on this and, and getting to this point? He spends more time on the trials than he does on the actual crucifixion. Why is this so important? So we'll get to that question after we sort of see his argument. So we're going to read beginning in in Luke 22, beginning in verse 63. Let me just give you an outline because it's a large chunk so you kind of see where we're going. In 63 through 65 of chapter 22, um, we see there's there's, um, the the men who were guarding Jesus um, are mocking him and beating him. In verses 66 through 71, we see Jesus before the, the elders, before the Sanhedrin, um, in, in sort of his um, religious trial. 
Then in verses 1 through 8, or 1 through uh, 7, he's brought before Pilate. In verses 8 through 12, he's brought before Herod. And then in verses 13 through 16, he's brought back to Pilate. And so that's kind of the flow of of this. But let's read these verses. I invite you to look at them. It is a larger chunk of Scripture. Luke 22, beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day but before they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Jesus was innocent. When we were last in the book of Luke, uh, we were watching Peter. Peter was on a trial of his own, wasn't he? All these accusations uh, in the courtyard of the high priest's house. His faithfulness to Jesus, as it were, is put on trial, and he is found to be lacking. Peter turns and he runs. And now Jesus stands alone before his accusers here. It was nighttime still, And no official trial or sentencing was allowed to take place until daylight, according to the law. So nothing official could happen. So what's happening right now is some sort of unofficial pre-trial that's being conducted by the elders. This group of, of 71 members, all of whom would have represented the wealthy and the noble in Jewish society, are going to question Jesus. Before they officially meet and try Jesus, though, these Men, you see in verses 63 through 65, are keeping watch over Jesus. They begin mocking him and beating him. 
they've been waiting to get their hands on him, and now they have him in custody, and so they are making fun of him. They blindfold him, and they hit him, and each time they hit him, they sarcastically tell him, prophesy to us, who hit you? Jesus was said to be a prophet, and so they want him to prophesy. How painfully ironic this all is, isn't it? We just read, in fact, of a fulfilled prophecy of Jesus. Jesus had predicted the denial of Peter. We just watched that happen. He is a prophet. He predicted not only the denial of Peter, he predicted exactly what's happening here. He tells the disciples multiple times, the Son of Man is going to be mocked and beaten and put on trial and killed. And so as they ask Jesus to prophesy, they in fact themselves are fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. And amazing to think that he could answer their question. That when they say, who is it that struck you? Jesus knows. Luke pronounces his own judgment on these men, doesn't he? He says that their words spoken against Jesus were blasphemy. They were speaking irreverently. They were speaking wrongly about God as they beat the Son of God. And the irony of it, again, is that the irony becomes that even greater as Jesus is placed on trial for what? For blasphemy. When in fact he is rightly saying he's the Son of God. The only people committing blasphemy are these guys here. In verse 66, day breaks. Uh, The assembly can officially meet now and they have Jesus before them. They want to keep things short and crisp, so they ask a very leading question. They say, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, then tell us. They want to know if Jesus claims to be this promised deliverer of the Jewish people. Uh, They don't want to do it so that they can follow him. They want to do it so they have some sort of uh, confession from him so that they can accuse him and hopefully have him put to death. So Jesus responds, and he responds with three statements. First, he points out, that if he says he is, they're not going to believe him. He says, um, if I tell you, you won't believe. And then secondly, he says, and if I ask you guys what you think, you're not going to answer me. Um, their, their question is, is disingenuous. And Jesus says, even if I give you the right answer, even if I tell you that I am the Messiah, you're not going to believe me. They have rejected him up to this point, Right? I mean, they've rejected all of his miracles, all of his words, everything that he's done that have been so clear that he is the Messiah. They've rejected it up to this point. And if they couldn't see him as the Messiah right now, then then his confession, his saying, yes, I am the Messiah, it's not going to do anything. And so Jesus doesn't even give them an answer. But he does give them something else because he wants them to understand who he is. He says... Uh, He doesn't say, yes, he is the Christ, but he says something different. In fact, he doesn't say that he's the Christ because it would would mean something totally different to them. Their understanding of who the Messiah was 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 so off from what the Messiah was truly supposed to be that if he says I'm the Messiah, it means something totally different to them. So he's not going to say that. Instead, he says, he answers their question, but he does it so in a way that's in fact going to show who he truly is, but it's also going to bring condemnation on him. He says it in verse 69 there, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, in a sense meaning that that what these guys are doing, trying to condemn him, is actually going to result in his exaltation. So from now on, the Son of Man, not a Son of Man, but the Son of Man, 
is going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I think Jesus is saying two things with that statement. One is that that he, as the Son of God, has the right to enter into the presence of God and be seated in power. He is claiming deity here. And the second thing is that he's saying whatever power or authority these, these priests and these rulers assume that they have, Jesus is saying, I am exalted to the place of supreme authority. Remember all these discussions about authority that have been going on back and forth between the religious leaders and Jesus. And Jesus is now saying, I'm exalted to the highest place of authority. He claims that he has the authority of God. And in a sense, he's saying, whatever's going to happen in this trial really doesn't matter because I'm the ultimate authority. You know, those are wonderful, glorious truths about who Jesus is, if you believe them. But, But the scribes, when they hear this, the chief priests, when they hear this, all they hear is an opportunity to bring a clear charge against him. So they hear him say this and they say, oh, are you, the son, are you saying that you're the son of God? He did say that, but they, they want him to say it. He says, I'm the son of God, but they want him to say very clearly, I am the son of God. So they have a charge. So Jesus says, you, you say that I am. It is as you say. He has a sort of ambiguous answer, again, because he's not reluctant to say that he's God. He's just saying, you guys so don't understand what this all means that, yeah, I am, but not in the way that you guys are thinking about it. And so they don't get it, and they see this not as a truth about who Jesus is, but they say this is, this is blasphemy. That statement is all that they needed to condemn him. They say, we don't need any witnesses. We don't need any more testimony. He has said it for himself that he's the son of God. Therefore, he's committed blasphemy. And blasphemy is a capital offense. In their eyes, Jesus deserves to die. So here's the trial before the religious leaders, and he is found to be guilty. He's guilty of claiming to be the Messiah and of making himself equal with God. But that's the problem, isn't it? That's not blasphemy. It's true. He is the Messiah, and he is equal with God. So he is not guilty. The only people that have committed blasphemy are those that have beat him, and even these that in this trial won't accept who he is. But for people who reject him, Jesus is simply a liar. And his words are not evidence of our need of him. They're evidence of our reason to condemn him. Anyone who would reject Jesus as Messiah, who rejects him as king, who rejects his deity, who rejects him as as savior, does not condemn Jesus, but in fact condemns themselves. So they decided that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He deserves death. And so the council takes him in verse 1 to the Roman authority, Pilate. They are an occupied nation, the Jewish people, and so they do not have the right to kill anyone. They're not allowed to carry out the death penalty. And so they're going to Pilate, who's the Roman governor over Judea, and they, they want to have Jesus executed. The only problem is that blasphemy is not a capital offense in the Roman government. You can't have someone killed for blasphemy. It doesn't work. And so they have to try to come up with some way to communicate why his blasphemy is worth Rome killing him. And so they bring these three charges. You can see them there in, in verse 2. Let's just spell them out. The first one, they say, they say this man is misleading the Jewish nation. He's, he's misleading us. Well, he certainly was stirring things up, wasn't he? 
He was leading the nation to reject the rule of these guys. He certainly was exposing the hypocrisy and the, the pride of the scribes and the Pharisees. He had certainly just cleared the temple. But he certainly was not misleading the nation. What was he doing? He was leading them into truth. He was leading them into what is right. So that's not a good claim. And Pilate doesn't even really seem to care about that. The second thing they say is, this man forbids people from paying taxes or tribute to Caesar. Now this is something Pilate would be concerned about. He's in charge of getting the money to Rome. And so if Jesus is saying that, then that's something Pilate would want to tackle. The problem is that's a lie, isn't it? Because we just saw in chapter 20 that Jesus very clearly said what? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. But he says, pay your taxes. So it's, it's, it's a false um, accusation. The third thing is they say that Jesus is, exalts himself as the Messiah, which is equivalent to saying that he is king. Now this would be a concern for Pilate. Because exalting yourself above, above the emperor, leading some kind of revolt, this would have been a death sentence and so uh, Pilate kind of jumps onto that question and he says, are you the king of the Jews? I, I wish I knew what his tone of voice was in asking that question. You know, sometimes maybe you get a text and you think, was that person being sarcastic or nice? I'm not sure. I, I wish I knew what he was saying. You know, are you the king of the Jews? Is he mocking Jesus? Is it sarcastic? Is this a genuine question? It's, it's hard to know. But again, Jesus responds in sort of this ambiguous way. You have said so. It's so similar, isn't it, to the way that he responded to the other authorities. Why is he so reluctant? I think, again, it's this idea of what is a king? What's a king to Pilate? And, and what kind of a king is Jesus? Is he starting some sort of revolt? I mean, there will be a day when Christ returns as king and he will squash every earthly authority every earthly government but and that's not what he's doing right now his his kingdom is is seen in the spread of the good news of the gospel his his kingdom is found in the hearts of men and women who will bow their knee to him as savior as king is he a king yes but he's a king beyond anything that Pilate could imagine so Pilate asked more questions we know that from the other gospels and you can read those but as he speaks with Jesus, he, he gets the idea this is not some revolutionary, self-enthroning guy that, that the religious officials are trying to make him look, at, look like. He saw through them. And so he's heard the accusations, he's listened to the evidence, and Pilate pronounces the verdict, right? Verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Case closed. Should have been. That's over. Pilate said this guy's not guilty. And Pilate could have said that when the objections came up. But his accusers, Jesus' accusers, won't rest. And so they, they try to show how broad his influence is. Pilate, you think this is just localized. No, this is going all over the place. It's here in Jerusalem, but it started all the way in Galilee. And Pilate hears Galilee, and he says, ah, this is how I get out of this. Gal is he a Galilean? Oh, well, actually, conveniently, Herod is here in Jerusalem. He was there, he would have been there for the Passover feast. And, and Herod's jurisdiction included Galilee. And so, so Pilate sort of passes the buck and said, well, send him to Herod. Let Herod figure this thing out. So Jesus goes to Herod. This is the same Herod who listened to John the Baptist um, and liked to hear what he said. 
but never changed. This is the same Herod that killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded after, being, after making a rash vow. And this is the same Herod that Jesus has called a fox. You go tell that fox. You remember when Jesus said that? This is a scheming, conniving, sly guy. Jesus has no respect for Herod. He's a, and Herod has not changed at all. It says he's, he's interested. Oh, he's excited that Jesus is going to come. Maybe he's going to see some sort of miracle. Maybe he's going to get to ask Jesus some questions. He's excited at this thought. There's people like that, aren't there? This just Herod, this, it strikes me. He's, he, he likes to hear John the Baptist. Oh, I like to think about matters of faith. I like to, I want to hear Jesus, maybe see some sort of neat miracle that he's going to do. You know this, I, I remember talking to a, a guy in Starbucks, and I mean, he just wanted to talk about all different kinds of faith. I could be very clear about the exclusive claims of Jesus, but it was just sort of like, let's just think about anything and everything that relates to, to faith and to God. And Herod's kind of like that. But we need to be careful of that. Beware of being like Herod, because you will be very disappointed, just like Herod was disappointed. Jesus had answered questions, hadn't he? But what does it say when, when Herod asked questions? It says in verse 9, So he questioned him at some length. Herod's asking a lot of questions. And Jesus doesn't give him one answer. Doesn't say a thing to Herod. Jesus knew the hearts of all men. And he knew Herod had no interest in listening or hearing what Jesus had to say. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53.7, which says, He, speaking of the Messiah, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is silent. But in Jesus' silence, what's going on? We see the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. As he is silent, as Herod asks him questions, the chief priests and the scribes continue to accuse him before Herod. And finally, when, when Herod gets no answer from Jesus, he starts to, to mock Jesus as well. He joins in on the questioning. He joins in on the mocking. He dresses, Herod, he dresses Jesus up like a king. And then he sends him back to Pilate. Verse 12 is interesting, isn't it? Herod and Pilate became friends. They had been enemies and now they become friends. I'm not sure what the... Why did they become friends at that moment? Was it that they had reached the same conclusion about Jesus? Did they sort of bond over this mocking of Jesus? They liked that. You know, Herod, Pilate's sort of like, hey, I like your style, Herod. You know, the way you make fun of me. What a strange thing to become friends over, though, isn't it? The, the, the killing of an innocent man is how they become friends. So strange. So Pilate receives Jesus back in verse 13. And he gives the verdict again. He, he explains that he and Herod have both examined Jesus and they find him guilty of, of no crime. I think the second part of verse 15 is what Luke is pushing towards. He says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. And we have to agree with that, don't we? If Luke's testimony is true, then we have walked with Jesus. We've seen his, his manner of life. We've seen the way that he lived. And we can say he didn't deserve to die. He, rather, he, he'd done everything to prove that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. He'd done nothing but push back against corrupt authorities and show love and kindness. He was innocent. He's guilty of anything. He's guilty of being who he truly was. 
He's guilty of showing love to people, of bringing the truth of the gospel to people. He's innocent. Why is it so important? I mean, I think Luke makes his case. Jesus was innocent. And everyone recognized it. Everyone knew it. So why is that so important? Let me give you three reasons. I don't think this is exhaustive. I invite you to think about why is it important to think about the innocence of Jesus. But let me give you three reasons why it's so important to say that Jesus was innocent. The, the first is because of the perception of a crucified man. The perception of a crucified man. So let's remember that, that Luke is writing in the first century. Um, in the years that had just followed Jesus' death and his resurrection, he's in a climate, he's writing in a climate when people are still very hostile toward, towards Christians and towards Christianity. He's writing to this guy Theophilus we see in chapter 1, and he's giving this account of Jesus' life. And it would seem that, that part of the concern for Theophilus is to say there's this religion that's rising up, and I want to see how legitimate it is. And it would have been so hard for people in that day to grasp a group of people that were following a condemned criminal. That's what Jesus was. He'd been condemned and crucified by Rome. And now there's this whole group of people that say he rose from the dead and we're going to follow him. That's strange. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, sort of spells this out in a way that better than I could. He says, the Christian's choice of a cross as the symbol of their faith is more surprising when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. We can understand why Paul's message of the cross was to many of his, of li, to many of his listeners foolishness, even madness. Then he says this, How could any sane person worship as a god a dead man who had been justly condemned as a criminal and subjected to the most humiliating form of execution? This combination of death... Crime and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone of worship. So why would you worship this guy? So what Luke is doing is if he can, if he can show the truth that this trial was a sham, it was a joke, and Jesus was innocent, then that perception of Jesus as a criminal who had been rightly condemned totally shifts. It transforms who he is. He's no longer a pariah in society, but rather his claims can be taken seriously. This is part of, of, of Peter's point in Acts 2. So Acts is, is Luke part 2. It's Luke's continuing saga of the church as it goes on. And, and as Peter is preaching, he tells the crowd, listen, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he was proven to be the Messiah by rising from the dead, and you guys killed him. And, and so Jesus is being shown throughout the Gospels to not be the criminal that everyone seemed to think that he was, but that his claims were, in fact, true. So this is very important. It's, it's, it's an apologetic. It's, a, it's an argument for the, for the validity of Jesus as Messiah and as King and as, um, as God himself, that he, his trial was a joke and he was not guilty. He was innocent. Not only was his death unjustified, but in the positive sense, the innocence of Jesus is what makes the crucifixion, what it, how it can be a willing sacrifice. So, so another reason that this is the innocence of Jesus is important is because of this, because of our need of a substitute. The innocence of Jesus is important because of our need of a substitute. If Jesus is really guilty of a crime, then he should die, right? I mean, that's justice. 
That, that's, we know justice. Justice is right. It's good. If a person commits murder, then they deserve to pay the penalty. If, if at your work you steal from the cash register, you should get fired because that's just. Um, in parenting, if one of my daughters hits one of my other daughters, they deserve some kind of punishment. And if Jesus committed a crime, then he deserves the penalty that's handed out to him. But he wasn't guilty. And that's the greatest news in the world. Because the innocence of Jesus means that as he dies, he pays the penalty not for his own sin, but he can pay the penalty for my sin. If he's guilty, then when he dies, he pays the penalty for his own sin. But if Jesus is completely innocent, then it makes it possible for him to pay the penalty for my sin. Jesus was innocent, but all of us are guilty before God. We have all sinned against God, and the penalty for sin is death. And God is a just and righteous God. God doesn't take sin and push it underneath the rug and say, that's okay. Sin must be paid for. It must be punished. And the beauty of the gospel is that God sent Jesus to be perfect, to be sinless, to be innocent, so that he could take my sin and your sin upon himself and die, not because of his own sin, but because of my sin. Jesus takes my sin upon himself. He dies not because he was guilty, but because I am. And by faith in that sacrifice, we can know the forgiveness of God. We can be given the righteousness of Christ. This is how Scripture puts it in some other places. That prophecy again from Isaiah 53, Isaiah writes there in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore, carried the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The cross and death on a cross was seen as a curse. And Jesus did not deserve to be cursed in that way, but we did. And so Jesus becomes a curse. Why? For us. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, the gospel in one verse. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin, he who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes sin for us and dies. We need a substitute. We need someone to die in our place. And the innocence of Jesus, the fact that he was not guilty, makes that possible. Finally, the innocence of Jesus is important because of our need of an example. So we said it's important because of what a crucified man was regarded as in those days, because of our need of a substitute, and also now because of our need of an example. An example particularly in suffering unjustly. How do we respond when we are falsely accused and even condemned? Now, this doesn't have to do necessarily with a court system or seeking justice, but but rather I think it has more to do with as we walk as Christians, how do we respond when people make false accusations against us? As in First in, um, Peter, when Jake was reading it, it said, those who 
suffer for righteousness' sake. How, how do we respond when that happens? How do we walk as, as Christians when we're accused of hating other people, when in fact our hearts are filled with love for people? How, how do we respond when we're seen as, as subverting the law, when in fact we're trying to uphold the law? How, how do we respond when we are ridiculed or, or demonized or mocked for following Christ? What do we do? Do we kick, scream, assert our rights? Do we fight back? Do we fight with swords and swearing and lawsuits? What did Jesus do? Jesus let misunderstandings remain. And Jesus could have argued with these guys and said, you guys don't understand, I'm a king, yes, but let me explain that to you. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but you're missing the whole point. Jesus, in a sense, just kind of let that, yeah, that's who I am. You guys believe what you want. And, and then at times he remained totally silent. Didn't say anything. Jake read 1 Peter 3. Let me read 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, Peter gives us some instruction on this, as he does in 1 Peter 3. Again, Peter's writing to the church, as Jake was saying, that is suffering. And in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18, there's some instruction given to servants, it says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he gives us the example of Christ. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus is an example for us to follow when we suffer unjustly. I think it's something to think deeply about. This is, there's no simple answer to this question. But don't let the example of Jesus fade to the background. But there are times when you will be misunderstood. And that doesn't mean that you have to defend yourself. There will be times when everything in us wants to well up and, and say that you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. And instead, we follow the example of Christ and we are silent. And what are we doing in that? He says here, he continued, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Jesus stood in that trial and he knew it was a joke. He knew they had, no, they had nothing against him. He knew he was innocent. But he entrusted himself to God. He said, God judges rightly. And we can do that too, can't we? That when we suffer unjustly, when we are ridiculed un unrighteously, when we suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, we can entrust ourselves to God. Know that God judges rightly. He will take care of it. The innocence of Jesus, it's so important. But we need it. But we need it because we are in so desperate need of a, an example for how to walk in these things. But I think the most important thing is that, that we need a substitute. It's good news that Jesus was innocent. 
It is such good news that he was not guilty, that he was perfect. And it's also good news that while being innocent, he was condemned to death. Because it's that sacrifice, it's the death and the resurrection of Christ that we can find life in. We have no hope apart from that. Next week we're going to see how the, res- the crowd responds to Pilate's verdict. Pilate says he's done nothing wrong. And the crowd still won't have it. We're going to watch Pilate buckle under the pressure of the crowd. And then we're going to see an unlikely character that's actually more like us than we want to admit. But that's next week. Let me close this in prayer. Jesus, we affirm this morning that you are, you were, you remain guiltless, sinless, spotless. Lord, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you are like that spotless Lamb, sacrificed so that others could know life. Jesus, we believe that. We believe you are innocent, and we are so thankful, God, that that you sent your son and he became sin for us. He didn't die on the cross because he had sinned. He died because I have sinned. Lord, thank you. We rejoice in this truth. Lord, help us to let it sink in. Help us not to be like the the scribes and the Pharisees who hear it and, and reject it. Help us not to be like Herod that's just sort of interested or curious but help us to be those that would give our lives for you that would stake our claim on the fact that you are our savior you are our lord but thank you for this this um this word from luke thank you that he took time to compile it to give it to the church what we are such um, beneficiaries of what he has done for us so we thank you god we pray all this In Jesus' name, amen.